Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 5. In a way, you could call all the books the Acts, couldn't you? But, Acts chapter 5. Today we'll be starting in verse 33. And those of you who are new to our fellowship, we've been going through Acts verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Um, so we're, we're in chapter 5 now. <clears throat> last time, if we think about the verses we looked at last time, we read of the jealousy of the Sadducees, if you remember this, towards the Lord's work through the apostles. Um, many healings were happening. The people were listening. And they arrested not just Peter and John, but all the apostles and put them into public prison. And if you remember, the crime that they had committed was helping the sick and preaching the good news that there is redemption in Jesus' blood. And they are imprisoned for such evil actions. And we are told that they were rescued by God in a miraculous way. Right? They continue testifying to the love of God and in Christ Jesus, but somehow they are able to just escape from a prison while the doors are still locked and there are guards outside those doors and no one sees them leave. They are rescued and they are told to go to the temple and keep on preaching. Tell them the words of eternal life. And the high priests and Sadducees, they have no idea. They say, hey, go get those guys from the prison so we can question them. And they go to get them. And they're, like, they're not there. I don't know where they are. I don't know what happened. Another person comes in. They're in the temple right now teaching. Now, listen, as we discussed this morning in Sunday school about how even though the God's people saw the plagues fall upon Pharaoh and they knew they knew God was at work right one plague okay two three four five six seven all that in accordance with what Moses told them was going to happen beforehand and some still didn't believe, right? Many still did not believe. What about these Sadducees? They're not curious and wondering at all how they're able to escape a locked prison. The thought hasn't crossed their mind that perhaps God is at work here and we are in opposition to God himself. And they're found, though, that the apostles doing the very thing they had been told to stop doing. If you remember, no more preaching in this name, they were told. After being threatened. So they are re-arrested and questioned again. Are you hard of hearing, Peter? John? Did we stutter? 
When we threatened you and charged you to stop talking about Jesus, did you think we were bluffing? Now everybody's talking about Jesus even more, and you're putting his blood on us. And if you remember, Peter says, we heard you, but we were given a higher command than your command from the king himself. And we were told to continue preaching. We, we have to obey him before you. And then they preach the gospel. Verse 29 of chapter 5, Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. They, they, they must tell of what they've seen and heard. And in a way, they're, they're witnessing to the, the leaders, aren't they? Did you see what we saw? Did you see the signs and the miracles that were done through us? You remember Peter said before, why are you staring at me like we did anything? We have no power to do this. God did it through us. The Spirit is showing them that Jesus is approved. Verse 32, we are witnesses. So is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. God gives the Spirit to those who obey Him, and the Spirit testifies. Well, let's start with today's reading. Verse 33, we'll read until verse 7 of chapter 6. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thetis rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. 
Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 6. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. Verse 33, the leaders, the Sadducees, the high priests together were enraged, we are told, furious, very angry. After they are told that They are witnesses that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God as leader and Savior, that Jesus is the way to repentance with God, that forgiveness is in Him. When they heard this, they were furious. Seems like the wrong response. Should be thankfulness and wonder. Wow, God is having mercy on us. But instead they are furious and enraged. How angry are they? We were told angry enough that they wanted to kill them. In a fit of rage. This is not new. Their resistance to the gospel and to the will of God, it's not new. They always resist the Holy Spirit and refuse to believe the truth. The truth is, Jesus was dead and then the tomb was empty. They refused to believe that and made up a lie instead that said his disciples snuck in and stole the body. Even though Jesus had appeared to hundreds of people after rising from the dead. They prefer the lie. God will be with us because we're Jews. We're his people. He'll be with us. That's the lie. That's the lie. If the circumcised has hearts that are evil, doesn't their circumcision become uncircumcision? Because you're a Jew, is that an advantage? Yes, it is, because you should know a lot more about God than most would. But don't believe the lie. 
He loves me because of my bloodline. No. And these leaders, listen, they refuse to repent. They judge themselves, as the Bible says. They judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. Verse 34, a wise Pharisee, Gamaliel, these names, I'm just going to pick a way to pronounce them, by the way. Play me the original audio recording and then we'll know what the correct one is. Gamaliel, who, who actually was the teacher of Paul. A wise Pharisee, not a Sadducee, a Pharisee, he talks them down from committing murder. They're going to kill the apostles. They are furious. And the Bible says this teacher was held in honor by all the people. He convinces them, let's take a wait and see approach. If you're actively going to kill them, you might be the one who's in the wrong. Let's wait and see. It's too soon to tell. We don't know for sure. Well, listen to me, brothers and sisters. It's 2,000 years later. Was God opposing them or was He with them? And did the Christian faith come to nothing and all the people scattered? No. They congregated worldwide. Gamaliel's wait-and-see approach was right. We know now God was not opposing them. He was on their side, or they were on His side. He brings up two cases, but really, you know, there's been many cases in Jewish history, right, as they were being occupied but two cases in the past of people, quote, claiming to be somebody, end quote. Thetis and a man named Judas, the Galilean. There are just two examples that he brings up to, to stir up their minds and say, remember these two cases? And at first it seemed like, wow, 400 people. But actually, when you think about it, it's a pretty small movement. Pretty small movement. And it, in both cases, nothing came of it. It was a temporary blip on the radar. Boop, then gone. As soon as you saw it, gone already. He's like, don't worry about it. If God's not with them, it's going to go away. It's going to blow away. If God doesn't support these movements, if you want to call them that, uprisings, insurrections, it'll come to nothing. And so they decide to take his advice, and they restrain from killing the apostles. But really, God was the one restraining them. He restrained them. I mean, the the Sadducees are the ones who are opposing God. 
They're the ones who are opposing the message of Jesus' ambassadors. And if you think about this, right, the ambassador, when they go to a foreign country and tell what the will is of their country, they're not lying. Those ambassadors would be immediately either executed or fired or something bad would happen to them if, if a foreign country says, we receive your ambassadors, and then those ambassadors lie about what the king actually wanted. Do you understand what I'm getting at? As ambassadors for Christ, the disciples are not lying. They're telling the will of the king, the Christ, the anointed one. There is forgiveness with God. Repent. And the Sadducees say, we reject the notion that you're God's ambassadors. And if that is his message, we reject that too. You wonder why God's wrath came upon Jerusalem? This is God's Son, whom He has said, I am well pleased in Him. You're not well pleased in Him? What's wrong with you? I testified already. This is my beloved son. I'm well pleased in him. If you take the opposite approach, well, then we're not on the same team. The work of Jesus, the work of the church that preaches Jesus crucified for sin and resurrected to glory, God is in favor of it. Do you hear me? He's in favor of it. And the apostles, this is interesting, the text says that they, um, they did not kill them. Right? Verse 40, uh, verse, the very end of 39, so they took his advice. They took his advice to wait and see. But they still beat them anyway. And told them, leave and stop teaching in this name. That is not what Gamaliel told them to do. He said, leave these people alone and let them go. They're like, yeah, good idea. Okay, beat them and then let them go. Wicked. Right? Again, no trial, no actual evidence of doing anything wrong. In verse 41, listen, we're going to spend a lot of time on this today. Because the narrative takes a term here, turn that would normally be crazy talk. This would be crazy talk. The disciples rejoiced that they were beaten and counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of their master, Jesus. This, listen, you know this because the Bible teaches it, but this is crazy talk. Why would you rejoice when you're beaten for no reason? Why would you rejoice that you suffered dishonor? 
because you follow a certain teacher that's held in ill repute. We see this sometimes in the news. Some person who was formerly viewed as a good teacher and then they're disgraced publicly or found in gross sin publicly. Do the students of that teacher want to talk about it? Say, oh yeah, I studied with so-and-so. You probably wouldn't mention it. Your teacher has fallen into shame. We've seen some very high-profile cases of famous teachers recently who people have been blessed by them. Would, you, would they publicly say now that they continue to read and, and admire those teachers who are now disgraced? I don't think they would make it known. I'm not saying that Jesus actually was a bad teacher. That's not what I'm saying. But it's crazy talk in the normal way of things to rejoice because you're, you've been beaten and that your teacher is disliked by the highest people in society and so they're going to make you suffer for following him. Normally that would turn you away. There's a theology of suffering in the scriptures. And in our day, there's lots of Christianese that's a lie that teaches that it's not God's will for Christians to suffer. Listen, they are liars. It is God's will for Christians to suffer. It happens every day, all over the world. And part of what happens when we suffer is we are like Jesus. He suffered. But what is this theology of suffering? And what is it? Why would they rejoice in it? And there's a lot we could say about this and a bunch of different you know, um, sides if we were to turn it. But the main point is, is that the gospel is light. The gospel is the light. And the darkness is sin and the schemes of the devil. And they are against each other. Light and dark. Darkness in the world hates the light of God. We know this. Right? The one who doesn't believe, he does not come into the light. His deeds will be exposed. He does not want that to happen. Those who believe, they do come into the light because they want people to see what God is doing. Darkness hates it. Jesus being the light of the world, the darkness hates him. His followers, his People, being children of light, are hated by the darkness. These forces are against each other. It has always been so, and it will continue to be so until the Lord Jesus returns. There is a battle going on. How big of a battle? A massive battle. It's in every place at all times. Light Versus darkness. 
It's in every country. It's in every city. It's in every state. It's in every home and every mind. Light versus darkness. Paul discusses it, and we know it to be true in our lives as Christians. We want to do good, but we don't always do that. And we want to reject evil, but we don't always do that. Why not? Because there's a conflict in us. There's a battle between light and darkness. Why do we suffer? What is this theology of suffering? What is it? I mean, if we overcome the darkness in the world... It's not, we're not going to win because of our might and because of our strategy to overcome it. That is not the testimony of Scripture. We overcome darkness by the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb's blood covers it. We want to be successful in our following of Christ, right? But the facts are you're failing constantly. I pray to God and know that we are being sanctified. But let's have some honest talk here. Aren't you failing constantly? Your brain is giving you problems, isn't it? You want to think rightly. You don't. Sometimes. You're not going to win because you all of a sudden figure it out and you live without sinning at all. No. It's not by works no man can boast. We overcome darkness by the blood of the Lamb. Faith in God. And this battle against darkness leads to suffering. It does. This is why some Eastern religions say, you know, don't try too hard one way or the other. Because there's a balance that's going to happen. If you do too much good, you're actually inviting evil to come in to balance it back out. I think that they rightly understand that there's good and evil. But that's a ridiculous idea. Practice, I've read this before, practice non-doing. Be neutral as it relates to light and darkness. That, that's folly. That's foolishness. We win by, command, by obeying the command to love one another and love our neighbors as ourselves, even though there's lots of suffering that happens there. We read recently when we went through Luke in chapter 21, quote, You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Well, listen, let's be mature in our thinking. Not a hair on our heads? Many Christians have been burned alive and every hair on their body burned off of them. What does Jesus What does the scripture mean when it says not a hair on our head? I think it's similar to what we read this morning, Eric. All things happen for good for Christians because they're on a road to glorification. 
And uh, if you put down every single thing that ever happened to them, we might we might say, well, I don't know if it was great that I hit my thumb with a hammer, but it happened along the way, and that journey was taking me to glorification for the Christian. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And if we say, well, but Bill, lots of people died. Well, did they? They did, but did they? Can you understand what Jesus said? Though he die, yet shall he live. He who lives and believes in me shall never die. You could even say, not a hair on your head will perish. Right? Whoever believes in me will not perish. We are told in the scriptures. Why would the disciples rejoice because they are hated? Why would they rejoice because they're beaten? Why would they rejoice because they suffered dishonor for following Jesus? This is very important. It means that they're on the right side of the fight. You hear me? It's the reason they rejoice. If darkness is opposing them, then they must be on the light side. If darkness opposes the light, and the Sadducees are definitely dark, it must mean, it follows, the disciples are on team. I'm not trying to... They're on team light. Sadducees, dark. Very evil, right? Publicly beating people because they help sick people. That makes no sense at all. They rejoice. They're they're worthy to be dishonored. That means that we're on Jesus' team. We're with Him. They did it to Him. They're doing it to us. Are you suffering? I mean, we suffer for many different reasons, right? Some of it is persecution for your faith, active persecution. Some of it is weakness in your body because of sin. Our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made, and God made us, and we were good. But sin has corrupted it, everything. I have diabetes, which is an autoimmune disease. Your own body kills itself. It's not an outside disease. It's it's turned on itself. Sin has our bodies messed up, our minds. We'll suffer. We suffer from children. We suffer from parents. We suffer from neighbors and co-workers who are on different sides 
of this light and darkness fight. We suffer from failed crops. Children who are miscarried. These are difficult things that happen. Very difficult. But all that is related to the light and darkness struggle. There would be no sickness in the world were it not for sin. There would be no tears and crying and sadness and mourning except for sin. But if these disciples are experiencing suffering because they follow Jesus, they rejoice. It means they really have been rescued. They really are part of the kingdom of God. Quote, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When Paul was thinking about that, he considered it a rescuing. We were in darkness, and God rescued us and brought us into the kingdom of light, kingdom of God. Quote, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice! insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter wrote this down later after having experienced this. Right? This is not something that he's not familiar with. He was in the party that was just threatened and then arrested again and beaten. Do not be surprised. Do not think something strange is happening. Suffering is part of being a follower of Jesus. It is. If somebody teaches you that it's not, they are lying. Do not be surprised when it comes upon you to test you. We read about that this morning, Eric. I'm amazed how many times these things line up. There's testing that happens. God lets us be in a certain place to test, to see that we would grow. Quote, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans chapter 5. We've got Paul. We've got Peter. We've got examples in the Scripture. Suffering is part of being a Christian. In fact, they, they teach us that we should rejoice if it happens. One commentator said, God allows suffering into the lives of those who are His 
to grow them closer to Him. He does not delight in our suffering and that He is glad that we go through pain, but because we choose Him over the comforts of the world. If God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, He certainly doesn't take pleasure in the death of the righteous. But the right response for us is to say, may it be according to your will, Lord. Is that an easy thing to say? It's not. But whether you say it or not, it will be according to the will of the Lord. And be better for your psyche and your faith if you'll get on board. You understand what I'm saying? God will accomplish His end for you because He's faithful. He who started a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion. I've told you this before, but humans, we start things all the time that we never finish. We realize after we barely start, I don't even like this. I don't know why I thought I was going to like this. We give up immediately. Sometimes we do it for three to five years and then say, this career path, I don't like this at all. God has no such dilemma. He knows what He wants. He knows who He is. He knows what He's going to do. He starts it. He works on it. He completes it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And He's working in you. If you're His child, He will carry it on to the day of completion. Whatever's required. I worked as a general contractor for a while with Mr. Lou. And sometimes the door frame was just not right. You try to hang the door, the door won't close, it's cockeyed. And we'd have sometimes get a sledgehammer and bash the frame in. Yeah, sometimes it's dramatic what needs to be done. Just cut the whole thing out, we'll buy another frame and put it in. There's no fixing the one that's there. It's not even remotely square. God is going to do in you whatever it takes. He will carry you on to the day of completion. And if you need to be bashed with a hammer, He will do it. And if you just need to be encouraged a little, He'll do it. He is a faithful Father He does what's necessary. And suffering, listen to me, suffering one, you need it. It is the testimony of Scripture that it has been appointed for us who follow Jesus not only to bask in the glory, but to also suffer. You need it. Did you read? Did you read? Did you hear what I read to you? Suffering produces endurance. Endurance, character. Character produces hope. Hope doesn't put us to shame. 
Don't you want endurance? Don't you want character? Don't you want hope? Well, guess what drives all of that at the beginning? Suffering. Well, after the disciples suffered by being beaten, verse 41, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Even though they were just beaten, they did not stop. Their command is higher. Even under threats, even with physical violence, imprisonment, and, and obviously along with that, right, mental things, public shame. You know, when you, if you go to jail, it's not, it doesn't look good to people in public, right? You get out, what'd you go to jail for? Obviously you did something wrong. They don't put people in jail who are doing nothing wrong. All right, chapter 6, 1 through 7. This is, this is actually very easy. In obedience to the Lord, the people kept teaching and preaching, and God blessed them. And He used them, and a number of disciples are saved. A great, we are told that the disciples multiplied greatly. And many even of the priests, we are told. Verse 7, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I don't know that this is the leadership of the priests, possibly, but there are lots and lots of priests, and a lot of them were not wealthy at all. And they have experienced this church Charity program, if you want to say it that way, where money was collected and distributed to those who had need. And people would come and benefit from that. Perhaps that's part of the church's public witness to the deeds that are done because of Christ. But verse 1 there's been a lot of Gentiles that were added to this group. And they brought their own widows that they had. And it seems like the, the ones that they knew more, possibly, the Hebrew widows were being given more attention than the Gentile widows. I'm not sure that it was because they were Jews. It doesn't say that. But for whatever reason, they were being neglected. That was the complaint and so the disciples say, okay, we've got a problem here. There, there are legitimate things that need to be done. We're not the right people to do that. We have to keep preaching. God has given us power to preach. Many people are being saved. Let's create another office. The office of deacon. And they... They talk about who, who are some faithful guys that we can put under this job to make sure that the widows don't get neglected because we're just too busy. Let's let them do it. 
Verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So I think there's a couple things we can say here that are, that are helpful. One, what should elders be doing? Is this descriptive or prescriptive? I think it's both. It is descriptive. That's what they did. But I think it's um, prescriptive as well. I think ministers should pray and teach the word. Not that they can't do anything else, but if the other things make them too busy for prayer and preaching, then they need to offload that to someone else. Deacons, listen, we have a lot of experience in Baptist churches. Do you have experience in this? Often, deacons in Baptist churches are like assistant elders, sort of. And if the elders do things they don't like, they'll put a deacon's meeting, fire the pastor, and hire somebody else. And then as long as that person doesn't make them mad, it'll be okay. But if he does, they'll fire him and get another pastor. Listen, that is a corruption. Deacons are servants. Should deacons, Mark, Mike, should deacons be spiritual men? Sure. They should be. That's how they chose. Brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. But their job is not to rule the church. That's not their job. Their job is to serve in ways that the church needs help, in ways that the elders don't have time to do. And listen, our church has been blessed for decades with faithful, humble deacons. And I'm thankful to God. I'm thankful. No deacon ever comes up to me after the sermon and says, I have a problem with what you just taught. Let me tell you something. It happens a lot. You've heard Brother Hal talk about preaching and having someone come up to him afterwards. And how saying, I thought I was going to have a fist fight with this guy. He was so angry at what I had just preached. That doesn't happen here. Why not? Because our deacons are humble. And they trust God. And they're not trying to gain power. Deacon, there's two offices in the church. Elders and deacons. Elders' job is to preach and teach, to be the spiritual overseers as under-shepherds of Jesus, right? They're still part of the body. They're not the head of the church. Jesus is the head. And deacons are to serve the church in mostly physical ways. If it if it gets outside of that, they need to reform. Deacons have taken on the wrong function. And so they choose the deacons. Philip and Stephen really are the only two that we ever hear anything about again. The other seven, or the other five, All we can say is they, they likely did their job faithfully and served the church, made sure that those widows weren't neglected. 
Verse 7, the word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The suffering that the apostles endured did not hinder the church growth. It did not hinder people being saved. If anything, it was powerful witness that why would they continue preaching after being beaten like this? They must be preaching the truth. And God was blessing them. Multitudes were being added. They were sharing. They were helping. And the word of God continued to increase. Well, I pray that will help happen in our land too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you'd help us in the, in the fight of light versus darkness. That you'd help us to cling to Jesus. Oh Lord, help us to come into the light. Help us to stay close. Help us as we struggle. Help us as we suffer. Help us, Lord. We thank you for this church and all the ways that you're working in our lives, in our families, in our faith. Oh, Lord, strengthen our faith. And help us as we have lunch together that might be sweet fellowship and the rest of our time together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.